thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Lead SA. .co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Good morning, Chris. Morning. Good morning. It's always such a pleasure chatting to you. Let's start with this. We received an email last week. Somebody wants to know why sometimes babies are born with yellow jaundice. She says she's given birth four times. Jeez, I don't know anyone who's given birth four times. (laughs) Four times. And all her babies were born with that, but it went away by itself. So what is it? Well, the stuff that's in the blood that makes it red is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is a protein, and in the center of that protein is some iron. And the iron is held in position by a molecule which consists of four little rings called pyrrole rings. And the iron can be recycled when a red red blood cell dies, but these pyrrole rings have to be broken open and thrown away. And babies don't have the necessary enzyme machinery to do that breaking down and throwing away by the time they're born. Because when a baby is inside its mum, anything that the baby needs to throw away, all it has to do is to put into its bloodstream, and then the blood from the baby goes out to the placenta, it then goes into the mother's bloodstream, and the mother's enzymes in her liver and other organs deal with the baby's waste products. Once a baby's born, it has to stand on its own two feet, at least biochemically to start with, Mm -hmm. and that means that it needs all of its own enzymes and its own organs to be working. And if the enzymes that do those breaking down jobs haven't come up to full activity at the time of birth, Mm -hmm. some of the things they work on might accumulate to a high level, at least to start with. And so... When a baby is first born and goes a little bit yellow, this so-called neonatal jaundice is because the the liver enzymes that break down those four ring structures in hemoglobin aren't present at enough of a level yet to deal with the amount of breakdown happening in the baby. Mm -hmm. The treatment is really simple, though, and it was actually discovered about um, 70 years ago by a nurse who noticed when she put babies that had gone a bit yellow out in the sunshine, where the baby's skin was exposed to the sun, any jaundice or yellowness appeared to go away because when she took the nappy off, the nappy which had been hiding the skin there from the sun still had yellow skin underneath. And that was when it was first realised that you could use blue light because it's a blue colour. The yellow pigment, the jaundice, which is caused by bilirubin building up in the skin, that actually absorbs blue light very well and blue light will break open the molecule and turn it into a soluble form, which can easily be weed out by the kidneys rather than needing the liver to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Very interesting indeed. Thank you, Chris. Annalisa in Honeydew. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Reddy and uh, Naked Scientist. Um, 
some time back you did speak about the cells not producing pigment. In my case, for over 30 years, um, I had normal skin pigmentation. Then I went overseas, and when I came back, some of this, I noticed that some of the cells started um, not producing on the extremities, especially my feet, my hands, my chin. Um, why would that happen? Because my sisters don't have any such thing. <laughs> Okay. Do you mean that you've got some patches of skin, right. uh, Annalisa, that, that, that appear to be very white Absolutely. compared with the surrounding tissue? That's and and they're vol far more vulnerable to getting burned, for example. No, they go red and then after two, what, a couple of hours or so they go back to mm. white again. <clears throat> well, this, this does sound a bit like the condition vitiligo. And vitiligo is a, a condition where the immune system, for reasons we don't entirely understand, decides to damage the cells that make pigment in those bits of the body. And you will get patches of skin which can not make pigment. So as a result, they look lighter than the surrounding skin all the time, and they also can't react to sunlight in the same way that normal skin does, so they burn more easily. And it's an autoimmune problem where the immune system damages the melanocytes, the cells that make melanin, in those areas. Why it's confined to just those areas... I don't think we entirely know. Hmm. It's not painful, is it, Chris? Well, it, it's not painful while you have just got the immune system removing the cells there. But as I was saying to Annalise, because you can't make the pigment, you end up with uh, an area there which is far more vulnerable to the sun. So it can burn more easily and become sore more easily with UV radiation. But otherwise, no, there's no reported pain. Okay. Peter in Pretoria North, hi. Hi. Mm. Um, hi to the nature scientists as well. Yeah. I just want to know about the behavior of a liquid uh, in space. Let's say, for example, in the absence of, of gravity. Normally, uh, uh, the, the liquid would take the shape of, of, of a container. But what, does, what happens uh, in the absence of, of gravity? How, how does it... it, it uh, what is its shape? How does it look like? Hello, Peter. Um, people have actually found this out, both the hard way and experimentally. Mm -hmm. um, the guys in NASA say that the, um, they're always very dubious of any brown-looking M&Ms floating around uh, <laughs> for various <laughs> reasons. But uh, you're right, that water on, under the influence of gravity would be pulled down, accelerated down, and would take the shape of a container. In space, where everything is in free fall, let's assume you're in orbit around the Earth and everything is continuously falling towards the Earth because it's in free fall known as an orbit... Under those circumstances, then the container and the water are both falling at exactly the same rate relative to each other, so the water doesn't take the shape of the container. Um, water is a sticky molecule because it has what's called hydrogen bonds. The hydrogen parts of water are a little bit positive and the oxygen parts are a little bit negative, and this means that the water molecules are sticky and they try and stick together. So the water will try and form big blobs howsoever it can, Although, if you have a big volume of water, it will be easy to perturb it and break it into lots of little bits because you'll get various resonances building up in this blob of water and some bits will shear off. But they will try and form little sp spherules or round blobs of water floating around. Mm. If you had a less sticky substance, 
that didn't want to cling together so easily, it would be far more easy to fragment that into very, very tiny droplets. It would still, I think, because of uh, the attractions between the molecules, try and form round shapes, but it certainly wouldn't um, behave in the same way that it does on Earth. Thank you very much, Peter. And John in Midrand. Hi there, John. Hi, really. Good morning, uh, uh, Naked Scientist. Mm. I just have a quick question. Uh, Fabrice Mwamba's case. How is it possible for somebody's heart to stop for as long as the heart has been claimed to have stopped and wake up and still have consciousness uh, and respond in a manner that he was said to have responded? Okay, of course we're delighted Hello, that he's making this recovery, yes. but yes, what does it all mean? Yeah. Indeed. Well, the, I think the, the saving grace for uh, Mwamba was that in the crowd was a cardiologist and he was interviewed on the BBC. He was one of the people who was sitting quite close to the front and leapt over the barrier, got onto the pitch and commenced resuscitation efforts on him. And people were doing chest compressions because it was pretty obvious that he had suffered a lack of cardiac output for whatever reason. They didn't know why at the time. And because people very quickly intervened and started doing cardiac compressions, this actually probably maintained a sufficiently good blood supply to the vital organs. And he was a fit young man anyway. Mm. And this meant that uh, enough blood was reaching the organs in order to make sure that they weren't deprived of huge amounts of oxygen and they still had sugars. And yes, they did persevere for over an hour. Yes, he was actually in a, in a cardiac arrested state for an extended period of time. But uh, allegedly, conversations held with him in hospital since show that he certainly still has his sense of humour because the cardiologist who helped to resuscitate mm -hmm. him uh, said to him, do you know where you are? And he did say he's in hospital. And then he said, I've heard you're quite a good footballer. And he whispered back to the doctor and said, so they say. <laughs> uh, so, so he obviously has his sense of humour, and, and the fact that that's that that's intact argues that uh, most of his brain functions are luckily going to be okay. I think there's a, a deeper seated problem. We were discussing this at the hospital yesterday about the fact that why has this happened in this young individual? Yes. Um, we we realise, and this case tells us how common actually this problem is, because in a very large number of people there are genetic problems, which mean that the heart is more prone to going into funny trains of electrical activity and although we don't know exactly what happened in his case yet it's likely he may have one of these underlying uh, cardiac problems whereby when you stress the heart or put it under considerable load as a professional footballer will be then you might disclose one of these problems and you're more likely to get these electrical rhythm disturbances that can culminate in your heart abruptly stopping. Uh, it's very common and lots of young people in many countries all around the world every day die abruptly of this. Mm -hmm. Luckily uh, for, for him, he got resuscitated. Many of these individuals aren't resuscitated because they're in the middle of nowhere or no one is around who can help them quickly. Yeah. And there's a huge research effort trying to understand what the causes of this are and then what the best ways to manage people who have it. And usually what doctors do is to fit to these individuals implantable defibrillators, electrical devices that yeah. keep an eye on the heartbeat. And if they detect an unusual heart rhythm, they zap the heart in the same way that putting the paddles on the chest would. And this can reset the electrical rhythm and restore a normal heartbeat. So they save lives, although they're quite scary for the people who have them. 
when they go off and they shouldn't, which they sometimes do. We had this conversation with my producers and we're talking about he, his level of fitness. It seems that, you know, when somebody who's very fit and lean and healthy has a heart attack, there's concerns, almost as though that person should be immune to any heart attack. And you ask questions about, uh, you know, the, the, the extent of exercise and whether or not this is a congenital disorder that someone would have and the sport, perhaps, of that, that exertion would, would, would bring it about. Obviously, uh, Chris, I've got concerns around this because I'm a runner and I see we've had cases where runners have died at the finish line uh, or at comrades and there'd be debates about this run um, and other debates would say this is probably somebody who had this condition anyway. Yes, um, and the thing about people who are professional sports individuals, they they actually end up with hearts which are large. Um, just like any other muscle that you exercise, if you use your heart a lot, then it will become larger. So an Olympic runner, for example, has a heart that pumps out with every beat a very, very high proportion of blood um, compared with a person who is untrained. In fact, if you look at the maximum heart rate of an Olympic runner, it's lower than the maximum heart rate of someone who is untrained like me. Mm -hmm. uh, ref football referees for the World Cup, I mean, they were showing these guys have a resting heartbeat of about 30. Um, in other words, half what a, an average adult would have because their heart is so large because mm. it's trained, it's squeezing out twice as much blood in every beat as an, a normal, in inverted commas, heart. Now, the problem is that whilst getting larger like that is a response to exercise and probably not harmful in the short term right. for the majority of people for some people if you put that much pressure on your heart and you have an underlying genetic thing that means that the cells may not electrically reset themselves absolutely spot on if you have more load on your heart you are more likely to disclose some kind of latent genetic problem that's lying there and I think that could be what's happened with um, this individual. Okay. We hope that um, that he's going to be okay. But I, I'm really quite worried about his footballing career because um, I can't see many clubs um, being able to get insurance to play somebody like that in future. Mm. All right, let's take a break. Craig, Joyce, I see your calls back in a moment. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Let's go to Craig in Northcliffe. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. I've had an interesting question from my son who's 10, and mm -hmm. I wanted. To, I said I know just the person to ask, and that's our <laughs> friend in. Uh, he wanted to know if the Earth was spinning the opposite way on its axis, what the effect would be. Ah. Hi, Craig. Um, the answer is that we, we would see the sun going up on the opposite side than it does. Um, but other than that, it wouldn't make any difference, I don't think. There are some um, bodies in our solar system that do have funny patterns of rotation. Um, I understand that Uranus uh, rotates as though it's fallen on its side. Um, we think this could reflect a big collision with Uranus after it was formed sometime back in history, although it's also possible that resonances from other planets and interactions have made it become a bit wonky. Um, so basically, the bottom line is, we would notice the sun appearing on one side of the sky and going down on the other, um, compared with what we do today. But for us, otherwise, life would be pretty much the same. Okay. Thank you very much, Craig, and thank you to your son. We love these questions from these young minds. So if you've got children who want to satisfy their curiosity, uh, why don't you call us and uh, we'll do our best to answer their questions. Thanks, Craig. Alexander in Pretoria. Hi, good morning. I've got Bell's Palsy. You've got what? I'm from Bell's Palsy. Okay. Since December last year, um, I'd like to ask Chris as to what would be the common factor for the course of this particular facial paralysis? 
Patients. And also, why is it so prevalent in um, the age of 40 years old and, uh, and also in pregnant women? Okay, the line wasn't good there, Chris. I wonder if you got that? Yeah, I got that. Fine. Hello, Alexander. Sorry to hear about your problem. Um, the problem Alexander is describing is one of Bell's palsy. Um, Bell's palsy is where you have facial paralysis down one side. Uh, unlucky for some, you can get it on both sides as well, but usually mm. it's just one side. And individuals who get this find their facial muscles, their muscle, muscles of facial expression, are weakened or in some cases completely paralysed. And as a result, people get a drooping face, they can't close their eye properly, their, eye, their mouth might droop on the affected side, and if they try and smile, then half their mouth on the normal side smiles and they can show their teeth, and on the side that is affected, they mm. can't do that properly. The reason for this is that fa the facial nerve, which is your seventh cranial nerve, for some reason stops working to supply those muscles properly. The most common reason is probably a virus infection. And we know that some of the herpes virus family, herpes simplex and also varicella zoster virus, the chickenpox virus, appears to be linked to this. Some, sometimes people describe um, a condition called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome where you find spots in the ear and this is associated with the onset of Bell's palsy. Probably because the herpes viruses live in the nervous system, if they come out on the skin, they can then also get into the facial nerve and damage the cell that supplies the facial nerve or the cell group, and this paralyzes the muscles. In pregnant women, we think that this, this occurs because when women are pregnant, this is associated with an accumulation or a switch in the way that fluid accumulates around the body. And um, often many, many pregnant women say that in the later stages of pregnancy they get swollen ankles, for example. Mm. Because the facial nerve has to come through quite a tight aperture uh, in the skull bones to get out of the inside of your skull and onto the outside world, if you have swelling in tissues, it can squeeze on the facial nerve and this applies pressure to the nerve axons inside the facial nerve and stops some of them working properly, and this can make some people get an episode of Bell's palsy. The vast majority of cases, though, are what we call idiopathic. Um, we don't actually ever find a defined cause for it, um, but in some individuals, giving people a course of steroids, mm -hmm. which damp down the immune response, seems to make them better. And because of the relationship to herpes simplex viruses and varicella zoster viruses, some people are also advocating giving people steroids and a course of a drug called acyclovir, which is an anti-herpes drug, and this together appears to have a beneficial effect, and uh, in a number of cases people find that their problem goes away. Luckily, because it's a peripheral nerve, in other words, it's outside the brain and spinal cord, um, there's much better prospect for recovery because peripheral nerves can grow back better than nerves in the central nervous system. Jonathan has sent an email. What is a quark and how small is it uh, compared to an atom, and is it part of an atom? Yeah, so in ancient Greece, <clears throat> going back a few thousand years, Democritus was one of the first people to talk about the concept of an atom. He and his school of thought came up with the, the concept that things eventually become indivisible. An atom comes from the phrase which means you can't cut it further. So the ancient Greeks had this idea that eventually you get to something tiny, which was a building block of matter, and you could not reduce it further. 
for a long time that held until people came along with things like the particle smashers that they have at CERN in, in America and started ramming particles together at very high energy and they found that you could actually cut the uncuttable. They succeeded in smashing up atoms and realized that atoms aren't the smallest unit of matter mm. because atoms are themselves made of even smaller bits and pieces and those subatomic particles include things like protons, neutrons, electrons, and they themselves are made up of subatomic, subatomic particles. Um, quarks are some of those subatomic particles, and they assemble together in various combinations to make the, the things that make the atoms. Mm. All right, Joyce, Joyce and Santon, good morning to you. Hello. Yes. Hello, I'm sorry, it's Sandringham, I made a mistake. It doesn't matter where you are, Joyce, uh, what's your morning, question? Good morning, Chris Reedy, etc. Mm -hmm. My very great friend has had hiccups for over 20 years whether he's awake or asleep it very rarely leaves him and his chest heaves up and down he's completely exhausted from this no doctor knows what to do chris can you help gosh it sounds very very Awful. aggravating terrible um i think he hasn't broken the record though because they're on the record books is a case of a person who hiccuped for 70 years i think he was american uh, the answer to this is that hiccups are caused by connections in the brainstem. The brainstem is the thing that links the spinal cord to the brain and it contains all of the nerve pathways that control our automatic functions like breathing, like opening your eyes, blinking, your blood pressure and so on. And hiccups are um, a manifestation of abnormal electrical activity in the in the phrenic nerve that supplies your diaphragm. So it's a sort of diaphragm, uh, diaphragmatic spasm that's periodic and caused by pulses in these nerve networks. What actually causes hiccups, though, we don't know exactly. And why it is that in some people they become entrenched like this, we don't know exactly. There are some pathological causes, but the fact that this individual's had them for 20 years argues this isn't... It argues that this is not a new path pathology which is rapidly progressive like some of the other causes. And it can't be a drug cause. There are some drugs that will cause hiccups, for example. So it might be that this individual has some kind of miswiring of the nervous system that has caused this to happen. And as a result, because it's a nerve pathway which has gone off kilter, uh, the, the hiccups can't be interrupted. Um, I, th I think in some individuals, don't quote me on this, but I think there have been some cases where doctors have looked to see if they can make a lesion actually go in and, and damage a little bit of the brain to try and ablate the hiccups oh. because some, there have been people who have had intolerable doses of hiccups like this. But don't quote me on that. I've just, I just think I've heard that somewhere. Okay, we won't then. We'll let you go as well, Chris. Thank you very much for your time. Chat to you next week. Pleasure. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.